Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you. In this episode, I'll interview a man who actually went through gay conversion therapy. It was an exorcism. Not quite as spectacular as the movie, but it was pretty shattering at the end. I remember both times I came out of it thinking, did that really work? Because I feel like I've just been run over by a truck. So there's a growing number of states in Australia moving to ban gay conversion therapy. We're going to hear Kim's story and then get his thoughts on how the law should actually work. First, today's big news stories with Katrina Blowers. It is Monday, February 27. An Australian hostage has been freed after spending more than a week captured in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Uni of Southern Queensland professor Bryce Barker was taken captive at gunpoint along with two colleagues while they were doing field work. It was a, a random opportunity crime that took place, but something that I condemned in the very strongest term possible. That's PMG Prime Minister James Murray. The armed group was asking for a ransom of $1.5 million initially. It's understood they did get some money, but not quite as much. Uh, this group has apparently been terrorising villages in that area. It's a group of about 20 people. Mm. Um, they remain at large, and now I guess the focus has switched on on finding them, and then they'll potentially face charges. Yeah, what a frightening situation. That is um, some wild terror territory there and and really dangerous. So for Bryce Barker and his colleagues to get out, that is very good news. And Anthony Albanese has made history over the weekend, becoming the first Prime Minister to march in Sydney's Mardi Gras. It's unfortunate that I am the first, but this is a celebration of modern Australia. Yeah, and it was a huge celebration. This is the first proper parade since COVID, and it was an extra special one because Sydney's currently hosting World Pride, which is a two-week global celebration that moves from city to city each year. So Sydney's going off at the moment. How good. I don't know whether you appreciated this as much as I did. Danny and Kylie getting together on stage. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that blew my mind. And how good do they look? It. Oh, I just couldn't stop watching it. Yeah, it was a beautiful thing to see. Um, the only bit of, I guess, bad news from the night was Federal Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe stopped the whole parade when she laid down near the Australian Federal Police float after screaming abuse at police. She was protesting police violence. She wasn't arrested or charged, but judging by the boos from the crowd, her statement, which had very little to do with gay rights, was not appreciated at all. Yeah, and even the Mardi Gras organisers said, look, she could have potentially posed a real safety issue by Mm. stopping the parade. Um, People behind her had no idea what was going on. So, yeah, she she potentially put other people's safety at risk. Yeah, well, she knows how to draw attention to herself and I think there's going to be a lot more of that to come because she's now, as she left the Greens, she's on the crossbench in the Senate which holds the balance of power Mm. in Parliament. So who knows what kind of protests (laughs) are in store on a political level. Queensland is set to roll out a pill testing program. The services will be at fixed and mobile sites in Brisbane. They'll chemically test illicit drugs to check for the presence of dangerous substances. We have had coronial inquests in Australia that have recommended bringing in drug checking, uh, but very few jurisdictions have done it. 
That's Queensland's Health Minister, Yvette Darth. So New South Wales and Victoria have both refused recommendations from coroners to introduce it. There's a story that's um, gained quite a lot of traction up here in Queensland, Tom. That's There's some parents, um, mm. the parents of a Brisbane man, Joshua Tam. He died from a pill overdose at a music festival five years ago now. He was just 22 years old and they've really been campaigning for this. Uh, the opposition up here is absolutely against it. And the Queensland government has been really quick to point out, you will not get your drugs back. So Mm. I I don't know how many people will actually be doing this, but how amazing that we're, I I guess I say we, because I am in Queensland, we are part of such a progressive movement. Yeah. So I've been covering this closely for years, the whole pill testing debate. So for Queensland to be the first state really is big news. They followed the lead of the ACT who brought it in first. They tested it at festivals in 2018-19 and now they've gone with a fixed site where you go into the city and you get your drugs tested. So Queensland's going to do both to begin with. They'll test it on mobile sites at events um, but then also have a fixed site. So yeah, it's huge. They've been doing it in a number of European countries for decades in some cases. They've seen that it reduces harm, hopefully stops people like Joshua Tam dying if people get Mm. proper intelligence that... um, Different types of drugs maybe have contaminants. Um, In some jurisdictions, they also test for purity. So they say, look, this is a really strong drug. You need to be extremely careful with this one. And that information's very, very important. So, yeah, very interesting development. And another interesting development, this one in the Raoul Dahl story. So the publisher announced over the weekend that they have... Uh, Listen to the debate over the past week, which has reaffirmed the extraordinary power of Raoul Dahl's work and the very real question of how stories from another era can be kept relevant for each new generation. So what they've done is uh, they've decided to publish two different editions. They'll have the classic original edition as well as the new edited edition where words like fat and ugly have been removed. I think this is a great way forward. This was rattling around in my brain last week. Why not do both editions Mm. and people can choose. The only thing I would say is is what we were talking about last week, Tom, about the kinds of useful and interesting discussions that these things can be a springboard for. One of our briefing hosts, Jamila Rizvi, actually wrote a really great post about this on Instagram last night that I encourage you guys to look up. Uh, she talks about how erasing these words actually erases how these previous generations spoke as well. So even, you know, books by Enid Blyton. Um, and it also suggests that the world has always celebrated diversity and respected difference, which of course was never and still is not the case. So I don't know. I I just think that like, while I don't, um, I'm not a proponent that these words that are offensive stay in in the books. And I think that it is a great idea that there's two versions. I also would hate for those discussions not to occur. Yeah, it's an interesting debate. Um, Just finally, a big congratulations to the Australian women's cricket team. They have successfully defended their T20 World Cup crown with a 19-run win over South Africa in Cape Town. So that is a very close game. What's not close is anyone else to their record. So the Australian women's T20 team have won six out of seven of the last World Cups. So what an incredible record that is. I love this, and I also love that they were described as scrappy in <laughs> in how they won the game. I reckon that's such an Aussie word. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, well done to them. All right, in just a moment, 
part one of our look at gay conversion therapy. Kim Kemis was such a devoted Christian, he even trained to become a minister. And that's despite knowing for years that his sexuality was in conflict with the church's teachings, which is how he ended up volunteering himself for a gay conversion therapy workshop. He joins us to share his story and give his views on the gay conversion therapy laws, which already exist in Queensland, Victoria and the ACT, and are currently being debated in New South Wales. Kim, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Tell us about your church days. What sort of church were you in? I grew up in an Anglican church in Sydney, which is uh, conservative evangelical, not as conservative and wild as the Pentecostal churches, Mm. but uh, not as liberal as other churches. It was fairly strict. I grew up in the church in the 70s, stayed within the 80s, and um, I studied for ministry in the 1990s, so I was deeply into it. Right. So how old were you at that point? Uh, I was 30 when I started studying for ministry. I'd left the Anglicans and gone to a smaller denomination, uh, which is a bit more hardcore. Right. So how early on did you feel a conflict between who you were and what you were hearing in church? Oh, day one. (laughs) Day one. Every year or so there was a sermon about you can't have sex with each other and then there'd be the occasional snide comments about homosexuals, especially when Mardi Gras came around. Mm. I'm bisexual, so I convinced myself that that part of me, the same-sex part of me, wasn't really important and I could ignore it and I could uh, just ignore all of the the warnings against those because I was pretty much straight. Right. So was this already swirling around in your mind as a teenager? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely conflicted. On the one hand, I wanted to go out and meet guys and on the other hand, I had to have this whole separate life, the whole community of the church, all of that, had to keep everything separate from going out and seeing guys. And the conflict was incredible. And so when did you start talking about this conflict and end up in gay conversion therapy? Was it something that you felt guilty about and you had to bring up with them? Or did they notice something in you? Nobody noticed because I did everything that you need to do. I was happily married doing all the right things, but I got to the end of my ministry training and I thought, I can't do this. I can't have this double life. Um, we're being taught that not being straight is bad and I have to do, do something about it. So uh, that was the time when I started looking around. I honestly do not remember how I came in contact with them, which is probably a good thing because I'd probably punch them out today, hmm. whoever told me about it. But uh, I got in contact with a group called Liberty Christian Ministries in Sydney. Okay, so you it wasn't inside the church you were a part of. You actually sought out other That's people right. to help you deal That's with this right. conflict. Yeah, outside the church, yeah. Okay, and so what happened? What did it involve? Uh, that involved in the first stage going to sort of like a training course for 13 weeks on a Friday night in a very cold church in Redfern. We watched videos of a man named Cy Rogers who had been through all of this and uh, told us that, yeah, we could change our uh, sexual orientation, that it just took a lot of concentration and discipline. He kept reiterating that it was sinful and we needed to get away from it. 
it was a continual thread that feeling this way was sinful, it was bad, it was shameful, uh, and we had to do something about it or we would end up in hell. Okay, but that's very similar to the message I imagine you get from the preacher in church on a Sunday, maybe just a dialed up version of it. What parts of this course really took it to a whole nother level? They dangled the carrot in front of you that you could change. And if you changed, that meant you could be the person you thought you should be, that you could fit into the church community, that people would respect you more, that uh, all of those benefits of being in the in the group, they would be there for you. Mm. Being able to be further into the group and be accepted because when you're in that sort of situation, you feel very isolated. Mm. So this was a chance to stay in there and be accepted and be with the people. Well, I, I got so many close friendships with people mm. in the church. I would, mm. Yeah, if I couldn't be accepted there, I would lose everything. Yep, that's your tribe and to walk yes. away from yes. that is everything. Yep. So mm. was it just that sort of hardcore preaching about how sinful it was and the encouragement to change or were there more specific practices or workshops or, or anything else as a part of this course? Yeah, there were lots of things. There were things like uh, conferences we went to about how, how to be a, a good Christian man. A lot of us went to counselling and psychotherapy, which was very heavily slanted towards religion, not secular at all. And then there are other things like prayer ministry. It seems odd if you haven't been involved in this world, but it made perfect sense at the time that the idea that these bad feelings and desires could be caused by demons and they had to be cast out through prayer. So I went through that a couple of times, went into this situation where people prayed over me and cast out the demons. So like an exorcism? Uh, Yeah, exactly. It was an exorcism. Not quite as spectacular as the movie, but it was pretty shattering at the end. I remember both times I came out of it thinking, did that really work? Because I feel like I've just been run over by a truck and it didn't make me feel better. The idea that you've got these evil demons in you is not one that's good for your self-esteem, especially when you're in a situation where everyone's been telling you you're bad. And you're in your 30s by this point. You know, you've already lived with decades of this conflict, this isolating conflict inside yourself. You volunteer yourself to go and be part of these workshops. How much worse do they make you feel at that point than you already did? When you're living a double life, you get used to compartmentalizing. And on the one hand, you think, I'm ticking all the boxes. I'm doing all the right things. I'm not falling into temptation. I'm being the man I'm supposed to be. But on the other hand, there's the man I really am who likes men as well as women. And that's still there on the inside and it's still there. It's not going away like they promised. Mm. And so you realise this is not working. Yeah, it just makes you feel worse because what you thought would work doesn't work and where are you going to go? So how did you eventually decide to walk away? I got involved in actually leading some of the groups after I went through and it looked as though, yeah, he's good, he's clean. I went to a conference in America where some of the people there, of of, all groups like this group, and some of the people there were saying, you actually can't change your sexual orientation. It's something that's hardwired in you. And that was something I hadn't considered 
that uh, it can't be changed, but it did start making sense. And long story short, I had a good rethink about everything, about what I believed, about what the Bible says, and eventually just accepted who I am and walked away from it. Wow. Are you still a Christian? I'm still a Christian, but I don't go to church. Uh, it's it's too hard stepping through those doors. I've tried it. Uh, I just don't, do not feel at home. Okay, so what do you think about the move to ban gay conversion therapy? It's happened in a few states in Australia already. It's now being debated in New South Wales. Yes. Is it still going on in the same way that it used to? And is it possible to ban it while still allowing freedom of religion? Because a lot of the ideas that flowed through your workshops are ideas that flow through sermons on any given Sunday. Yes. I'm all for a ban. At the moment, it's not as open as it used to be. Those groups were fairly well known in churches, but now it's it's sort of gone underground and it's like you, know, you pass a phone number around. Or you go and talk to your pastor and they'll say, ring this person. So it's uh, a lot more hidden than it used to be. I think, yeah, it's it's difficult. You do have to have that balance between religious freedom and also to stop the damage that this stuff does. Mm. And I think it's not a faith issue. Fundamentally, you might think it's about your religion, but it's not a faith issue. It's a health issue. This is damaging people psychologically. I hear about stories about people that have done self-harm, that have been suicidal. Mm. When I came out of it, I was not in good shape, and mm. it took me a long time to get back mm. together. So it is a health issue rather than a faith issue. And so you have to work on that basis. There's always going to be a problem in the church with this sort of teaching, no matter what the law is, whether it's uh, they say you can't teach that or not. I'm sure that if there had been more information available to me when I was growing up, when I was going through all of this, like we have World Pride in Sydney at the moment, Mm. banners everywhere saying how accepting they are of everyone in the LGBTI community. If we'd had that, that would have been much better. The visibility is going to be the thing that will help people Mm. who are still stuck in churches. So what you're talking about there, say visibility, world pride, that's cultural change. That's about our culture saying we accept you. But what we're debating here in New South Wales is a legal change, which is a very very different thing and a lot harder because at some point you have to draw the line on where that law cuts in. So. Let's think about it in the context of your personal experience where you were going to a church that was preaching being gay was wrong and something you can recover from, but then you took the step to join a a program specifically focused on it. Where should the law cut in? Should it stop that preacher from saying what he's saying in church or should it only cut in when someone organizes a specific program and there's a blurry line in between? So how do you distinguish? I think... You would have to deal with it the way that we deal with hate speech. There are laws against hate speech. You can't get up in a pulpit and say, these people must die because of what they are. It is hard to draw the line. Politicians will have to decide if telling people they must change falls into that same sort of category. Mm. I think it does, but I've got good reason to. Um, I think a lot of people who don't understand and aren't sympathetic will not feel that way. They will think that this free speech is being trampled on. That's Kim Kemis. And in tomorrow's briefing, we're going to speak to the New South Wales politician who's leading the charge to get the laws introduced. 
It's a really interesting conversation about where the laws cut in, which we touched on there with Kim, because as you can hear, it's not easy to balance freedom of religion with the desire to reduce harm, when in lots of churches, these teachings are core to their beliefs. You can catch that conversation in tomorrow's episode of The Briefing. Listener.